Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why diagnoses of health anxiety have risen with the pandemic. And why a Valley-based nonprofit is sending feathers to Native American tribal members across the country. But first, the state Senate today is expected to take up debate on a measure that would have big implications for some of the state's cities. The proposal would ask voters to repeal the part of the state constitution that allows cities to adopt charters. Those charters allow cities to approve ordinances dealing with a range of issues on how those cities are run. With me now, as he is every Monday during the legislative session to talk about what to expect this week at the state capitol, is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. Expect craziness. The lawmakers are in session. <laughs> so let's talk about this, this proposal. This would go to the voters and would basically say that cities are not allowed to adopt charters? Yes. Ever since we've had a constitution going back to 1912, the there's a provision in the constitution that says cities that get a vote of the people can form their own charter, which is essentially their own mini constitution. And it is allowed to affect areas of strictly local concern. Uh, for example, uh, the courts have said, you know, cities can decide when they want to have their election, when they want to have nonpartisan elections, how they want to elect their council members. It could also deal with such things as, as certain traffic laws and such. Uh, the courts have said in general that if it's not something that concerns people elsewhere, like whether or not you sell guns, which is a statewide concern, you can adopt it. What's happened is the city of Tucson has had this very unusual modified charter system. Uh, it's a, a modified ward system, actually, if you look at it, where each council member is nominated in one of the six wards, but then each of these people have to stand for election on a citywide basis. The idea being you've got council members who are beholden to their ward, but also can't ignore the rest of the city. Hmm. This has created a system in heavily democratic Tucson where even if Republicans were to control one ward, the Republicans have a hard time getting elected citywide. So some Republican lawmakers, notably Justine Wadsack this year, and it's been a perennial thing over the years, is trying to see how do I get rid of the system? The courts have said the legislature can't overrule it. So now they're trying to get rid of charters. You get rid of charters. Cities have to live under state law and state law does not allow for a modified board system. All right. So, Howie, you mentioned uh, Senator Wadsack. Let's hear let's hear what she had to say about why she thinks this is an important uh, an important measure to pass. We don't have fair elections. Our council members are being voted for by voters that are far outside of their area of interest. If we have to stick within legislative districts, stick within county districts, if we have to stick within districts. The city needs to be the same. So she's talking, Howie, as you just referenced, Tucson's city election system. But as you alluded to, this also could potentially have implications beyond just how cities run their elections, right? Well, you start off with the very basis that some cities elect council members at large. Now, if you believe Justine Watsack, every city should have to have a ward system. And some cities do, and some cities say we like at large. But it does go beyond that. Again, the, the the question of, for example, a city can decide it wants to have term limits. A city can decide if it wants to have public financing of elections. A city can decide it wants a strong manager style government. All of these are within the control of charter cities. You get rid of charters. You basically say that we're going to allow legislators from around the state to tell cities how they want to run things, which gets to the other particular quirk of what Ms. Watsack wants to do. Because this has to go to the voters because it amends the Constitution, it means that voters from every other one of the more than 90 cities and all the unincorporated areas decide how certain cities get to run their their issues. And that goes against what she's talking about in terms of having local people care about local issues. All right. So that measure is up for debate in the state Senate this afternoon. How I want to ask you, uh, election bills have been front and center for much of this session. Uh, a, a few bills uh, that could be coming up this week. One would deal with a tabulation of early ballots on site. 
this is a very interesting one because right now, as we found out this past election, a lot of people are hanging on to their early ballots, bringing them to polling places and dropping them off. What you've got is an arrangement where under this bill, you'd have to go ahead and be able to give it to somebody who would feed it into the machine, who would then you could see, in fact, that your ballot had been tabulated. You can walk away saying, isn't that great? The problem becomes not every county tabulates on site. In fact, half of the counties do not. You essentially, whether you're voting there or you're dropping off an early ballot, it all goes downtown and it all gets tabulated there. And so you're talking about creating a, a real havoc there. And you might even have to run two separate election systems, even of places that do tabulate ballots on site, because it's one set of ballots that are printed out on site uh, using the system, for example, that Maricopa County uses with its vote centers, and another set of tabulators for those who are bringing in their early ballots, which are formatted differently. And once again, this is one of those things where lawmakers say people don't trust the system. People want to see their ballots tabulated early. That, of course, led to what happened last time where the tabulators weren't working right and which led to all the accusations that somehow somebody had purposely done something largely get Carrie Lake. Right. Again, no evidence of that. Several courts have concluded no evidence of that. But now we're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide that. But that doesn't keep lawmakers from deciding we know better. Sure. So how about a minute left? I want to ask you, like, have the counties said how much this might cost them and have lawmakers allocated any money to help counties? I would imagine they would need to buy tabulation equipment to have at these sites. Well, to answer your second question first, of course not. There's no (laughs) money in there. Uh, Counties don't have any particular estimates because, again, some counties do have tabulators on site. Maricopa has tabulators on site. The others, uh, what's going to happen is the Association of Counties is looking around, trying to get answers from all their counties to say, you know, depending on how many polling places you have. If you have over 220 polling places like Maricopa, that's a whole different thing. If you go to a precinct-based system, which is what some lawmakers want, so you'd have to go to your only your own place, then you're talking many more sites rather than vote centers. And you could end up with hundreds and hundreds of vote centers and, ta- and precincts around the state, each of which would have to have tabulating equipment. All right. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Thanks, Howie. You're welcome. John Montenegro Cruz was convicted of murdering a Tucson police officer in 2003. But when it came to sentencing him, his attorneys were not allowed to inform the jury that if he were to be given a life sentence, he would never have the possibility of parole. As a 1994 Supreme Court decision called Simmons v. South Carolina ruled defendants in capital cases have a right to do, they sentenced him to death. Then in 2016, Cruz tried to go back to court after another Supreme Court decision. Lynch v. Arizona ruled Simmons applied in our state, but he was rejected by the state Supreme Court. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in and sided with Cruz. I spoke more about the decision and what it could mean for another for other similar cases with Michael Steinfeld, an appellate attorney with the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office, who was the attorney of record in Lynch v. Arizona. So in Lynch v. Arizona, one of the issues that we raised was that our client requested an instruction. It's an instruction that was approved by the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Simmons v. South Carolina. And what Simmons v. South Carolina said is that when a defendant's future dangerousness is put at issue by the state and when the only alternative to death is life in prison without the possibility of parole, that the jury has to learn that information somehow, either through evidence presented by the defense, uh, through defense argument, or most commonly through some sort of an instruction. So in Lynch, the defendant asked for that sort of an instruction. The reason was because the state was putting future dangerousness at issue. Mm -hmm. And Arizona in 1994 had abolished parole. But our Supreme Court, repeating the same sort of holding that it had repeated for more than a decade, said that something about Arizona's system was different. Specifically, what they said was that executive clemency or the clemency process that the governor leads is something that makes Arizona's system unique. Unfortunately, 
in Simmons v. South Carolina, the U.S. Supreme Court had already rejected that and said that executive clemency is not good enough. So in Lynch v. Arizona, the U.S. Supreme Court said, Arizona, you've been getting it wrong for more than a decade. You need to actually follow Simmons v. South Carolina. Right. And then we come to this most recent Supreme Court decision, which sort of gets back at the same issue again, but many years later. Tell us what was decided this time around. So this time around, we're dealing with the number of clients and and defendants who were in that interim. Mr. Cruz was actually one of the first defendants after we started having jury trials in death cases. And he asked for a Simmons instruction, pointing out that parole had been abolished in Arizona. And it was one of the first cases in which the Arizona Supreme Court said, no, 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 our system is somehow different from what was in Simmons v. South Carolina. So he was actually unable then to get the instruction that he was legally entitled to. And then you fast forward a little more than a decade and Lynch v. Arizona happens. And so he comes back to the courts saying, I asked for this a decade and a half ago. You should have given it to me. And Lynch v. Arizona proves that you should have given it to me. And what what the Arizona Supreme Court did is they said, no, no, no. There's a difference between a change in the law and the change in the application of the law. And what the Arizona Supreme Court basically said is Simmons v. South Carolina was always good law. It was always the law. We just hadn't been applying it. And so under our procedural rules, that's not good enough for a change in the law. And so what they tried to do is say, basically, you're unlucky on the front end. You're unlucky on the back end. You don't get any sort of a relief. It's almost like the the courts, you know, in these two various cases that that Cruz went up against, like he's losing from both sides. That's exactly what what happened. And in fact, that's something that Justice Sotomayor in the majority opinion and during oral argument observed that it was something of a catch 22 because Mr. Cruz tried to get the right ruling on day one when he was up on appeal in his first time around. And the Arizona Supreme Court decided to say, no, we, you know, Simmons doesn't apply in Arizona. And then years down the road, when we do in fact learn that Simmons does in fact apply to Arizona, Mm -hmm. the Arizona Supreme Court turned around and tried to say, well, no, 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 it always applied. We just got it wrong. And that's not enough to get relief. So this is a significant decision from the Supreme Court and sort of one that backs up the case that you were involved in, it sounds like. It absolutely is a significant decision. And it does back up the it does back up Lynch. I mean, Lynch is any case is only really worth what it can be enforced with. And, you know, if if a court is able to avoid or circumvent what the U.S. Supreme Court says just by engaging in some sort of hoops or or you know, kind of sophistry, then that's really a problem. And what happened here was the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you need to actually enforce the rights we tell you that you need to enforce. So what could this mean for other cases like this? Like, do we have any sense of how often this might have happened, like happened in the Cruz case, could have happened to other people where they were not allowed to disclose this to the jury? So it absolutely did happen to a number of people. If you um, look at the decision, there's a footnote in the decision that talks about a series of about five or six cases where it happened. If I remember from the research when when I was doing it, I want to say that there were probably closer to eight to 10 decisions mm. that dealt with this in some capacity or another, where it had either been raised as an issue or just preserved because you know, attorneys in Arizona started to feel like this was just a settled decision before Mm. Lynch happened and that there really was no point in asking the Arizona Supreme Court to revisit it. So in terms of what could happen, what it really means is that our clients who were denied proper instructions, they can pursue their post-conviction relief claims, which means that they can try to make the argument that, you know, their case should have been overturned in the first instance because of this change in the law. So there could be potential retrials, essentially, for some of these people? There could be potential retrials for these people. Now, that's not guaranteed mm-hmm. necessarily, but that is, that is in fact, what most of them are trying to get. It's what Mr. Cruz was trying to get, was yeah. a new trial on the grounds that he should have gotten this instruction and that his future dangerousness was put at issue by the state and that the jury needed to know that the only alternative to death was life without the possibility of parole. 
What are you hearing from others in the legal community and in this kind of realm? Like, are people surprised by this decision or do they feel like it was a long time coming? So what I'm hearing is a lot of relief and frustration. Mm. Um, I'm hearing relief in the sense that to us, this was something that was a long time coming and that we're relieved because of the fact that our, our clients who should have gotten these instructions in the first place, they can at least proceed with their claims. But there's also frustration because it shouldn't have taken the United States Supreme Court to, to fix this. Um, you know, I, I think back to when I was a kid and when I was a kid, my parents were pretty insistent that if I made a mess, I needed to clean it up. Mm-hmm. And realistically, the Arizona Supreme Court, they're the ones who created this mess by refusing to apply Simmons v. South Carolina. But then they also refused to clean up the mess that they created. Hmm. All right, we'll leave it there. That is Michael Steinfeld, appellate attorney with the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office. He supervises the appeals unit there and was the attorney of record in Lynch v. Arizona. Michael, thank you for coming on. Thanks for your expertise here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, we'll hear about a repository that stockpiles feathers specifically for Native American cultural ceremonies. We have seen the number of people experiencing homelessness increase exponentially in recent years. And that means there are more homeless encampments popping up all over our community, more people with signs on street corners asking for help. It's harder to ignore the people around us who are living unsheltered. But there are not enough shelter beds in the valley for all the people who need them. And they're not committing a crime simply by living this way. That is, unless some of our state lawmakers get their way, as they take a punitive approach to addressing homelessness that our next guest says is a mistake. E.J. Montini is a longtime columnist for the Arizona Republic, and he joins editorial page editor Elvia Diaz this morning to talk more about it. Good morning to you both. Hi. Good morning. So I want to begin with you here, E.J. You talk about the difference between homelessness and houselessness at the beginning of this column. Can you tell us what you mean? Well, essentially, I think it's a matter of perception in some ways. Um, Because a person doesn't have a residence, doesn't somehow diminish their humanity. And I think one of the ways that we have done that is just through calling people homeless. It's like, I think if you've, I mentioned in the column that if you saw the movie Nomadland with uh, Frances McDormand, when, when she goes out to live in a van, a little girl approaches her and says, you know, my mother told me you were homeless. And Frances McDormand says, no, I'm not homeless. I'm houseless, mm-hmm. which is a different situation. It means that I still have a place that I call my home, it just doesn't look like your house. Yeah, yeah. Elvia, do you agree that sort of the the rhetoric, like the way that we talk about people experiencing homelessness is kind of part of the problem? It is part of the problem because we're not dealing with the issue directly or the root of the issue, right? But but, but sometimes I do think that we, we get caught up in the terminology of what we call folks instead of actually doing something about it. And that's, that, that's my whole thing. What are we doing about it to actually help this population, to help the people that need the needed place to stay? So then let's talk a little bit about some of the policy at play here um, and what's happening as you address EJ in the Republican-run Senate Judiciary Committee, which passed a bill that would force local jurisdictions to remove encampments. It gives people about 24 hours to essentially get their things and leave. EJ, what do you think that kind of approach accomplishes? I think it accomplishes nothing. Um, essentially, when you assign the police to take care of homelessness, you offer them only very few options for both the people who you're talking about and the officers. You know, they could either arrest somebody or they could find them a shelter, which is a difficult thing to do because there's not many of those, or they could just simply tell them to move along, which is pretty much what this bill does. It mm. just says, you know, like, move them along. Well, that's just literally pushing the people down the road. I mean, it does nothing to solve the problem at all. And I think that's the basic problem I have with how the legislature is approaching this, because the fact of the matter is there are jurisdictions that are taking a more holistic approach. You're never going to correct the entire problem, but there are ways to do that now. There are ways to help that, that work. They create crisis response team. Those teams go in, they identify who the homeless are, what their problem is. 
they try to help them to find housing. They try to help them with like maybe housing assistance. They connect them with jobs and services. There are those kind of things that you can do. And that is something that the state legislature has decided not. They just want to call these people criminals and shoo them away. And that's not going to do a single thing to help the problem. So, Elvia, I want to talk to you then about this, because the sponsor of this bill, Senator Justine Wadsack, said, you know, essentially, like, cities need some kind of authority to address encampments, to address this issue, which can very often be unsafe. You know, people often feel helpless to do anything about it. What do you think about that? I, too, I'm not sure what this bill is accomplishing uh, other than, you know, criminalizing the, the homeless and forcing the cities to do something. I have been thinking about it, though, for, for the past few days since CJ wrote the column. There's so many issues at play here, right, from the property owner standpoint. You know, it deals with private property. So I have more questions than answers, right? I mean, what what is a property owner to do when something like this happens, right? When one or more or many of the unsheltered community, you know, decides to camp in, in your property, what, what kind of repercussions or what kind of authority that property owner is going to have? That's one. And second, you know, by criminalizing it and I don't know, maybe police officers, maybe the legislature is intending for police officers to actually arrest them and take them to jail. Well, that's not going to solve anything either because they're not going to be able to keep them forever. They have to release them and then we we end up in a vicious cycle. But I mean, the, the whole point here, maybe it is that we, knew, we do need to do something and AJ is right. I mean, some cities are doing, are trying to help the issue, but it's clearly, it is not enough. Most of the homelessness happens in downtown Phoenix. Yeah. So why isn't the region, you know, trying to help here, kind of distribute the, the responsibility here? Yeah. AJ, can you talk a little bit more about some of the solutions that you think are more productive and about sort of the, the broader approach Approach that Elvia is getting out there, that like a lot of this ends up on Phoenix and a lot of the controversy yeah. is centered there. Do you think we need a broader approach? Yeah, I think the legislature, what they should do, I mean, among other things, one of the say what they could do is they could take an approach like there are some states where the legislature will designate a certain amount of funding for cities that have this issue. And then the cities in each of their situations, they're not all the same. They can try to figure out what would be best to do. Like, I believe Salt Lake City is one of the places where one thing they're trying is they're literally building a community of tiny houses, mm -hmm. which they're hoping to use for homeless people. They have a team of people that identify these people and what they can do with them. They're providing them. One of the things that really does help, of course, is to find some kind of permanent housing for people. And this is talking about people that can work these situations. Naturally, you have some people who have mental health issues, you have other people who have drug addiction issues that, that may need some other kind of help. But there are a lot of people that can be, if they have a little bit of permanent housing, I believe in this Salt Lake City place, they're building these permanent little houses. I think one of the things that politicians predict, and, and which is never the case, is that if we do this, it'll, it'll pretty much solve the problem. And that's never the case. These are really complex problems, and there are people, there are many different reasons why people end up on the street. And you have to approach it that way with a, a, a situation where you have people who can deal with the mental health issues, you have other people who can deal with the drug addiction issues, and you have people who can deal with just the economic issues that people face. If you approach it with a team like that, you at least have a shot to take care of some of it, to reduce the problem that we have, to keep it at a minimum. Yeah. If you don't approach it, if you just take the punitive approach, then you're literally just going to shift your homeless problem from one part of your city to another part of your city. Elvia, what it sounds like both of you are getting at here is this idea that this is multi-pronged and it takes a broader approach to solve it. But do you think, because of the way that we talk about homelessness, do you think that there's a, a lack of will, whether it's political or just like humanity's will, to, to solve this? I think all of us see the situation that you were saying, you know, you, you can see them on freeways, you can see them under bridges, and you can see them everywhere now. But it's not the same when you're driving and you see them from a distance. It's not the same to hear about the numbers, right? There are 14,000 homeless people in Arizona. That sounds uh, almost an abstract for a lot of people when they don't have that encounter most of the time. So yes, there is lack of political will. 
uh, around the valley. And again, I go back to why are cities, you know, doing what EJ was saying, you know, putting money, building more houses and welcoming them, right? It is okay to talk about them as long as they're not in, in my neighborhood is a kind of attitude that solves absolutely nothing. So I want to end with you, EJ. You talk at the end of this column about your own family's history during the Great Depression and a mm-hmm. lesson that your grandmother taught your mother and how that sort of is reflected in or maybe lacking from the debate today around people who are experiencing homelessness. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, my mother and her sister were you know, children of the Great Depression. And my grandfather, his job outside of Pittsburgh was working in a steel mill. And they lived in a, in a, in a very small place that had no running water or a bathroom in it. But it was a home and it was during the Depression. But the trains that would come by to service the steel mill would occasionally have on them what in those days they called hobos, vagabonds, uh, men who were who were left homeless by the Depression and were just traveling around the country looking for work, looking for whatever they could find. Some of those guys would hop off those trains when they came into the little town that was adjacent to the steel mill where my grandparents worked. And um, they would knock on the doors of people and literally ask them if they had any food to pass along. And when this happened, it frightened my mother and her sister. And my grandmother told them, as a way to try to make them less fearful, said uh, that we shouldn't look at these guys as if they could harm us or as if they're bad people or anything like that. She said that she knows, my grandmother said that she knows that among the people who don't have homes, God puts angels and he expects us to treat all of the people who come to our house as angels because we don't know whether they're humans or whether they came from heaven to test our humanity. Mm. And uh, my mother deeply believed that. And so I ended up believing it all my life. My mother never passed up a homeless person on the street without saying hello, without asking if there was something they needed or something she could do. Mm. I tend to do that. My daughter, who got this influence from her grandmother, tends to do that. My son, same thing, tends to do that. And it's because I think it's just a simple reminder that they're like us. There was one of the sad things that I think uh, Representative Wadzak from the legislature said during this hearing that we're talking about was that these people are not our neighbors. And I would say that, yes, they are. They are our neighbors. And we have an obligation to try to figure out something to do for them. All right, we'll leave it there. E.J. Montini, columnist for the Arizona Republic, editorial page editor, Alvia Diaz, joining us this morning. Thank you so much to you both. Sure. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. The, pandem- the pandemic changed the way we think about illness, whether we go into a full-blown panic if a coworker sneezes or have developed a fear of leaving the house. And while a lot of us are able to return to the world in this phase of COVID easily enough, a lot of people can't. Our next guest says the diagnosis of health-specific anxiety has jumped during the pandemic. Dr. Gina Touch is a clinical psychologist with the University of Arizona's College of Medicine who treats people with the disorder. And she told me many of her patients are trying to navigate the fine line between what's reasonable to protect their health and what's not. I sat down with her in our studios recently to talk more about it, beginning with a definition. We are all familiar with anxiety, but what does health-specific anxiety look like today? So health anxiety actually has a new name in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychologists and Psychiatrists, and it's called Illness Anxiety Mm -hmm. Disorder. So if people were to Google it, they might find even the word hypochondriasis. Hmm. But it is really something different, and that's why it's been kind of reclassified and renamed. So it's really the anxiety about having a health issue, even if a person isn't diagnosed with a health issue. So I am imagining this is something that became more prevalent during the pandemic and and since we've been watching this play out for, what, four years now? Exactly, yes. People of all ages are watching the news, are listening to their parents and 
grandparents and people talking about it. So it's just been on our radar for so long since COVID started, obviously, yeah. and really has heightened people's anxiety. That makes sense, right? Um, tell us a little bit about some of the kinds of clients you see, like the kinds of people who come in and, and need help with this. This is, I'm sure, more widespread than people who are officially diagnosed with it. But right. what does it look like in your world? Well, it's all ages. People have anxiety as children. There are actually some risk groups. I see some healthcare workers who had some very legitimate healthcare concerns. And of course, kids, because they're hearing and not able to discern what's true and false, what's oftentimes um, what's magnified in the in their from their friends, from their parents. Another, of course, risk factor are people who are immunocompromised. Mm. So I've seen some patients who have serious illnesses, sometimes rare illnesses, and uh, cancer, of course, anyone who has a threat of having a more... um, a more serious reaction, possibly even a fatal outcome when they're immunocompromised and exposed to an unknown virus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So are you seeing these people sort of overcompensate? Is it like uh, trying to discern the line between what's a reasonable accommodation to make in your life and what's really not reasonable? So much so. Mm -hmm. And there's actually two kinds of health anxiety disorder. One is help seeking or really looking for answers to medical you know, symptoms and concerns. And the other is really care avoidant. So some people are minimizing and not wanting to go to a doctor, whether it's concerns that they're going to find something that's very dangerous or unable to treat. Or again, they may be uh, just avoidant because they've been told so many times things are in their head. Mm. This is where sometimes the medical world can not look at the seriousness of people's concerns because they can't find a medical explanation. So I think some people overcompensate when they don't feel listened to or, again, they don't seek care because they don't expect to get care. Mm -hmm. And some people are just really trying to exercise their own agency um, in terms of I feel like I can do something about not getting that illness or avoiding crowds so that they can feel safer. So are you seeing people right now, essentially, as we're coming out of this pandemic in many ways for lots of people who are vaccinated and able to reenter the world, you're seeing people have a lot of trouble reentering the world, it sounds like. Yes, because I think just like when it started, there's a lot of unknowns still. And a lot of times we'll see that people aren't wearing masks at all, even at really kind of high crowd situations, and people are kind of done with COVID, Mm. even though it's not done. And so their re-entry into the old world can't be the same as it was before they have had this experience, right? Yeah. So how do you help them cope with it? Because people do have to live in the world in some capacity, right? Right. Really what we can do is to work on our immune system. Hmm. So what helps our immune system? I know we wash our hands all the time. We can walk, we can exercise, we can eat well. We can definitely try to reduce our stress in other areas. So I think really what we can focus on are those things that we have some ability to change and do some experiments about getting out in the world. I think with health anxiety, as well as other kinds of anxiety, we don't even believe our own thoughts that we will be safe because anxiety is really kind of a threat alert. So why would we do something rationally that would make us unsafe. Mm. We have to look at areas including our physiology, our nervous system and how activated we get and how we can calm that. We have to look at those thoughts and try to make them really much more rational than they are. Mm -hmm. And then look at the behaviors that we are doing that really might not keep us safe, even though we think that they keep us safe. Hmm. So that's interesting, right? Because as people sort of have to adapt to the, you know, very kind of quickly changing COVID landscape that we've seen in the last year or so here as things have reopened. I'm guessing like you've seen a lot of people say, I can't ever do this. I wonder, like, how does identity play into this? COVID became so political, right? COVID became so about like a lot of people feeling righteous on one side or righteous on the other. Does that play into this conversation? So much so. And I actually have the permission from a client I talked to this morning Mm. about identity. Because if you identify with an illness or getting ill or being sick, that is really going to dominate your life. Mm. And making a, a cr- it's a critical mental shift to think about, well, what can I control and what can I do? 
what am I able to do versus what am I going to be disabled from doing? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having that kind of wisdom around what can I control? What makes quality in my life, you know, that the illness doesn't have to interfere with? Do you see a lot of people feeling like they're being very judged at this moment, Who people who are dealing with this and, and need to take their time to kind of do the things that everyone else is doing? I think that's one aspect. But there's another thing I'd like to point out that, you know, families and friends might be alert to. Mm. Because a lot of times when you have health anxiety, you're seeking reassurance, mm. reassurance that you're safe, reassurance that avoiding or not doing this thing or doing that thing is actually a good idea. And we, as family members and friends, oftentimes want to help. And so we offer assurance that we can't really offer. Hmm. So I think part of what families can do is be honest and say, you know, we don't know the facts. We don't know how hard this is for you to kind of come back into the world. No judgment. People need their own time. And we just can try to help them manage the unknown. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little bit about existential anxiety. And we all in our life, in living, right, existence, we have things that cause anxiety. And then we have layers on top of that when we have any other kind of anxiety or health anxiety. And when we feel helpless, there's not a lot that we can do that we're sure is going to keep us safe. Hmm. We believe it might keep us safe. And avoidance is one of those things. But if we live that way, then we cut out a lot of our existence. Right. So there's this question of sort of how much risk is worth taking. And also, if I don't take any risk, what else am I losing? Exactly. Yes. And again, it's a gamble, right? We have to take that bet based on kind of who we are. Mm. I, I hope people will be gentle with people who are really suffering from health anxiety because I don't think people realize how much people hurt Mm. living with health anxiety. Yeah. All right. That is Dr. Gina Touch, Behavioral Sciences Curricular Theme Director for the University of Arizona's College of Medicine here in Phoenix, a clinical psychologist who treats people with health anxiety. Dr. Touch, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for your expertise on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This past Friday marked the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and news out of both countries continues to develop quickly. With me for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the days ahead is the BBC's Rob Hugh-Jones. And Rob, what does this week hold for this ongoing conflict? Well, Mark, that's right. Last week we had uh, President Joe Biden's surprise visit to Kyiv in Ukraine and to Poland last week, and he made several keynote speeches. At the same time, President Putin in Moscow was making his State of the Union speech, uh, which is normally about two hours long and was on that day. Um, And quite quite a bit of that was given over to Ukraine. So both these uh, world leaders on very different sides of this argument, of course, were making their cases uh, and in a very, very public way. Now, this week, we have all kinds of things going on. So we've got about 100 heads of state and foreign ministers meeting today in Geneva, Switzerland. They're at the United Nations Human Rights Council. That's a five-week session, uh, amazingly, but the beginning of it is given over to Ukraine. And so we have the head of uh, the UN, for example, Antonio Guterres, there speaking in the last hour or two, and uh, quite a lot of uh, condemnation of Russia's action in Ukraine there. At the same time, there's quite a lot of discussion about uh, China's role, because China is essentially a a Russian ally, and at least claims publicly to be neutral uh, in this war. And it seems to be wanting to play some kind of a peacemaker or uh, mediation role. Uh, But of course, there is a lack of trust in Western capitals, in Washington in particular, about um, China's role. And that was not really helped over the weekend when we had the comments by uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan telling CNN that he thought there was no indication that China would provide lethal aid to Russia. That's a a key point at the moment. Will China provide that kind of aid? At the same time, William Burns, the CIA director, was talking to CBS, and he said he was confident that China is considering providing Moscow with lethal equipment. So you can tell there's a real debate going on in the US and in other Western capitals about whether to trust really China 
at this point. So this week, we have a lot more of Ukraine, just as we did last. All right, Rob, from uh, Ukraine now to Southeast Asia, and there has been a case of a, a young girl dying of bird flu in that part of the world. What is being said about that case and how significant is it? Yes, it's a sad case. So it's a, a, an 11-year-old girl in Cambodia. Uh, she became the country's first known human case of bird flu in nearly a decade. And it's intriguing from a kind of scientific point of view that her father has also tested positive and that a number of other people are being tested. Now, you can understand the international health authorities in the wake of COVID, of course, and the worst effects of COVID, to be watching any virulent or contagious, highly contagious strain of H5N1 or bird flu or avian influenza that's going around the world at the moment. You can you can forgive them for watching that very carefully, and particularly if they see any evidence of humans suffering or dying because of this. And that's why it's been taken so seriously by the World Health Organization. It's not unheard of for humans to get uh, bird flu. But as I say, it's been a long time since we had one in Cambodia. And really, in the last few years, we've not had very many around the world at all. The question, of course, is uh, we know it spreads among birds. We know huge numbers of birds have had to be culled around the world because of this. We know that it can jump to mammals. Uh, foxes and otters in the UK. Some foxes and otters have been infected with bird flu, as they have elsewhere. The question is, can it jump to humans? And then can it jump between humans? And that's absolutely crucial. And at the moment, there's no evidence that it can. But of course, in the wake of COVID, they're, they're ultra vigilant about this, and they're watching a virus that, of course, can mutate and evolve. Right. All right, Rob, let's uh, end with a story close to home for you uh, in the UK, which, of course, has a very long coastline. And there are now plans to use tides and currents to generate renewable energy there. What's the story here? Well, this is interesting because uh, the UK, you know, we're a bunch of islands really in the sea. We've got North Atlantic on one side, the Irish Sea, uh, the English Channel to the south and the North Sea uh, to the east. So we're surrounded by water, and, and the, the mapping agency here says we've got 20,000 miles of coastline if you count every single island. So, of course, at a time when countries like Britain and elsewhere in the world, coastal communities and so on, are looking at uh, producing more renewable energy, uh, looking at being net zero in the future and reducing, cutting their emissions, uh, and in the in, among issues, of course, of global energy security and so on in, in the wake of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. All of this has fed into the kind of atmosphere here as elsewhere in the world where a lot is being looked at in terms of, you know, how can we generate renewable energy in the future? And if you fly into London, as I did the other day, you will see banks and banks of uh, wind turbines out on the sea. Those are tethered to the sea floor. But increasingly, we're looking at tides in this country because in the southwest of this country, believe it or not, we have the highest tidal range anywhere in the world hmm. except for eastern Canada, which is interesting. So it means that when the tide goes out and when the tide comes in, that range is enormous. And so what they're looking at now is could we have lagoons that are huge walls, you know, with turbines built into the walls under the water. So when the tide comes in, it turns those turbines. When it goes out, it turns those turbines. And that all creates renewable energy that can be piped ashore. And then it can be stored in battery farms and used very quickly um, to help the local community and to power the local community. And of course, because it's tidal, uh, it will all be renewed several times a day because we know exactly when the tides happen. They're completely predictable and they can be mapped. So this is kind of an exciting development. It hasn't happened yet, but there are plans being drawn up and we are expecting a formal planning application in the southwest of Britain for exactly that. But there's quite a lot of similar ideas going on around the British coast and indeed around other coasts around the world. It's interesting to watch. All right. That is the BBC's Rob Hugh-Jones in London. Rob, as always, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. 
Bird feathers play a central role in many aspects of life for Native Americans. And a Valley-based nonprofit helps make sure tribal members have the feathers they need, regardless of where they are across the country. In 2010, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service worked with Liberty Wildlife to establish a non-eagle feather repository to accept, hold, and distribute non-eagle feathers to Native Americans for ceremonial and religious practices. So far, it sent out more than 5,500 feather orders to members representing more than 200 tribes nationwide. And last year, a documentary called The Weight of a Feather, the Liberty Wildlife Story, was released, further highlighting the group's work. Fish and Wildlife, by the way, operates an eagle feather repository. Robert Mesta is the director of the Liberty Wildlife Non-Eagle Feather Repository. I spoke with him earlier and asked how it works. For example, if there's a giant vault filled with feathers waiting to be distributed. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, We have a large inventory of feathers uh, that we store um, in large freezers of their carcasses. If not, we store them in dry bins as uh, individual feathers or wings or tails. Where do the feathers come from? How do you acquire them? We um, get uh, the feathers for our repository from our own collection at Liberty Wildlife. However, we would never be able to collect enough feathers from that source to meet the demands. So we receive feathers donations from throughout the United States. We receive them from museums, zoos, uh, wildlife rehabbers, um, both state and federal wildlife agencies, veterinarians, and, uh, and even falconers. What is the significance in Native American culture, traditions, religion of bird feathers? So throughout their history, Native Americans have maintained a very special relationship with the animals in their natural world, particularly birds and especially their their feathers. Feathers are present during the celebration of birth, the passage to man and womanhood, marriage, the healing of the sick, and the recognition of death, the cycle of life. Feathers are both sacred and revered by Native Americans, the feather is the most iconic symbol in the Native American culture. So critical to the Native American's ability to maintain their culture is the ability to access these feathers. Do different tribes use feathers differently and do different tribes use different types of feathers in different ways? Different tribes have different uses for feathers. And a particular interest is that it's a almost regionally based. Here in the Southwest, um, the tribes use a lot of hawks, owls, uh, and falcons, and eagles, vultures, and even condors. Where a tribe in north in the Northwest might use more water birds um, like egrets or smaller forest birds like. Uh, red-shafted flickers in their regalia and in their ceremonies. It's what they evolved with uh, that determines the types of feathers uh, they collect and how they use them. It sounds like what you're saying is that for most, if not all, tribes, they tend to f- use feathers from birds that were near where, where the tribes themselves were, where the tribal members themselves were. Exactly. For most tribes, those birds within their immediate environment were the ones that were used in their ceremonies. So if you had a coastal tribe, they would utilize, say, water birds in their ceremonies. Out here in in the desert, the tribes are more likely to use eagles and, and hawks. Out in the plains, You know, it could be other species. It just depends on, you know, the type of habitat in which these tribes occurred and the types of uh, birds that uh, were supported by those habitats. So how does it work then? You have this repository. Do tribes contact you and say, look, we need X, Y, and Z. Do you have that? Can you get it to us? Actually, uh, the process for obtaining uh, feathers from the feather repository um, is on an individual basis. 
uh, the Native American has to belong to a federally recognized tribe and be 18 years of age. And if he, if he or she is, then they apply to us through an individual application. And on that application, they can request a whole carcass or individual feathers, a set of wings or a tail, talons, but the feathers go to an individual that will hold a certificate that demonstrates that they received them legally. We don't send feathers out to like a tribe. Do you find that you typically have what folks are requesting? Like, have you had to say to anybody, look, we'd love to help, but we just don't have that? That's a good question. One of the big challenges to providing non-eagle feathers to a Native Americans is that there are over 900 different species in the United States. Mm. And so we do at times have to work very, very hard at uh, coming up with those species. But because we receive uh, feather donations from out the United States, we're able to provide, uh, say, a blue jay uh, carcass or uh, red shafted flicker tail feathers that don't, uh, these are species that don't occur in United in, in the Southwest, but we can provide them to Native Americans because we receive those donations from those parts of the country. Let me ask you about this documentary that recently came out called The Weight of a Feather, which talks a lot about what it is that, that you all do there and sort of about the importance of feathers in Native American culture and tradition and mm -hmm. religion. What kind of impact has that film had on, on what you do? And like, what, kind of, what, what have you heard from folks who have seen it and, and are more interested now and, and are learning about what it is that you do? You know, um, ever since we aired that documentary, the Feather Repository has been receiving uh, uh, quite a bit of input on, well, first of all, that we exist and how interesting it is and how important it is on uh, uh, what we do. Um, so I, I think it's a story that's little known, you know, uh, the importance of feathers to Native Americans and the importance of making sure that they have a legal source of these feathers. All right. Robert, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Robert Mesta is director of the Liberty Wildlife Non-Eagle Feather Repository. That'll do it for today's Monday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning at 9 with much more. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.